The title of my message today is First Marriage Horror and Second Marriage Glory. Strangely silent to hear that. You might think, that's some sort of sick sermon title, isn't it, Pastor Steve? Here's what I want to say to you. The illustration is not mine. It came from the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit. So don't be mad at me. Uh, and I wouldn't recommend being mad at the Apostle Paul or the Holy Spirit either. Uh, so now you're kind of interested, and that's sort of the reason I have that title is like, okay, what is this about? Am I, am I about to get mad about this sermon? No, we're good. Okay, we're good. How do writers, how do philosophers, how do authors uh, communicate complex truth? Well, everybody uses illustrations, an analogy that somehow draws a parallel to the truth that they're trying to communicate. And of course, even Jesus did this. Often he would say the kingdom of God is like, you know, it's like seeds falling along a path or uh, it, is, it is like a mustard seed or some other thing. The Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs, etc. So these illustrations, they correlate in some way with the truth that is being explained. Now, pastors, we, we do the same. We tell stories to illustrate truth, for example, about their incredibly cute five- and three-year-old daughters. For example, they seem to make their way into many a sermon uh, because it helps us to understand the truth that underlies it. And so we see with the Apostle Paul, we're preaching through Romans. If you're brand new today, we are going through this uh, letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome. And uh, we are in chapter 7 today, beginning chapter 7. But we've been, we've been seeing how the Apostle Paul from chapters 2 through 6 is explaining how obeying the law of God cannot gain us salvation, can't earn us eternal life, can't give us right standing before God, what he calls righteousness. Instead, the law of God, because it can't save us, it actually becomes the vehicle of our condemnation as the law of God reveals just how sinful we actually are. And by its holy standard, none of us are righteous, no, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. Now, here's the thing. We were five centuries uh, into the Protestant Reformation. Uh, this is not new news, that we are not saved by obeying the law. And yet we look back prior to the Reformation, you know, 1,600 years, here's the Apostle Paul, and he's spending so much time explaining the law's deficiency as a basis for a relationship with God. Why? Okay, Why? Well, for anyone that is of a Jewish background, this is a thought that is just almost too hard to, to, uh, to receive because the law of God, the law of Moses, established not only what it meant to be Jewish, but it established their entire nature of their relationship with God. If I could, if I could uh, draw a parallel, imagine that I got up here and I said, hey, uh, I have a new way for you to be an American an American citizen. But first of all, we've got to throw out the Constitution. You'd be like, wait a second. The Constitution is like forms the basis for what it means for me to be a citizen in the United States. How can you throw out the Constitution? Well, that's how the Jews heard the message of the gospel in the first century as the apostles said, listen, it is no longer the law of God that is the basis for our relationship with God. It is a new righteousness through Jesus. And it was just like, a paradigm shift so hard for them to get, in fact, to this day, so hard in Judaism for that to be heard and to be received. So when you understand the, the milieu, the context within which 
Paul is writing, it helps you understand why he's spending so much time on this subject. It's like, okay, we get the point, Paul, let's move on. But no, over and over and over again, he comes to the same point. Because not only is it the Jews who viewed obedience to some moral law as a basis for a relationship with God, but frankly, all the religions of the world do the same. All the religions of the world in some way, and in even corrupt versions of Christianity, they will say that it is something about our doings. It is something about our morality, our goodness, that earns us favor with God and is the basis for a relationship with him. So it's not just Judaism that stumbles on this. It is so many others. All of them trying to achieve something, you know, nirvana, heaven, some afterlife that they preach. And to all of those, not just to the Jews basing on the Old Testament law, the the same word applies. We all fall short of God's glory. Now, in light of that, hear this illustration that the Apostle Paul now shares, and it has to do with marriage, okay? A first marriage, what I'm calling horror, and second marriage, glory. I begin in chapter uh, 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, now, we're going to go a few verses after this, but I want to stop right there and let's just sort of explore this a little bit. Okay, now remember, the Apostle Paul, we know he was really, really good at contextualizing the gospel. And depending on the audience that he was with, he would would contextualize to their view and their way of understanding things. Uh, For example, in Acts 17, Paul's in not a synagogue, but he's in Athens. He's at Mars Hill with Greek philosophers, and he doesn't explain the Old Testament law to them. What does he do? He, he begins with their religious curiosity and natural revelation in theology and gets around to, to Jesus. But in the Roman church, there were, were what he calls in verse 1, those who know the law. Who is he referring to here? This is, these are the Jewish converts who were there in the Roman church, And also, uh, what typically are called God-fearers. These would be Gentiles who uh, were aware of of, of the God of Israel, read the Old Testament, not as a Jew, but as a Gentile. And they also were aware of the Old Testament law. So, his proposition here is this, that the law or the duty to the law, only applies as long as one is alive. Okay? For example, dead people don't pay taxes. Notice that? It's one thing to look forward to. Their only remaining responsibility is voting in Chicago elections. (laughs) So where he's going here is that What he's saying is that obedience to the law of God as a condition for the right for right standing with God doesn't apply when a death has annulled that duty. 
okay? Death annuls our responsibility to the law. And the illustration here is with marriage. So he begins with what everybody knows and everybody agrees. He says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. Okay? So as long as her husband is alive, she is his wife. There is a responsibility in that relationship. Marriage binds them together. But then he says, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Okay, again, everybody agrees that if, if two people are married and one of them dies, the spouse now is released from that covenantal vow, is released from that relationship. Her identity is no longer as the wife to that husband. She keeps his name. She certainly keeps her love. But from the perspective of the law, that marriage law no longer is binding. He goes on, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. Again, we're all agreeing here, right? If her husband, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So once the husband dies, the wife now, from that moment on, is free from the responsibility to that marriage. Now, I had, I had lunch with a pastor recently, and we were talking about a whole bunch of things, and we actually got talking about what happens to our churches and ministries if we die. Sort of a gruesome subject over lunch, I know, but that's where we got talking. And then, we, uh, and, and then it went to marriage, actually, and he said to me that he, he tells his wife, and I'm almost quoting now, my only requirement is that you grieve for three days. Any moment after that, marry jolly well who you want to. At least give me three days of sorrow. <laughs> now imagine with me that a, a, a wife, the day after the funeral for her husband, marries another man. Oh, the scandal of that, right? We would call it unseemly. We would call it ill-mannered. We would call it in bad taste. But the one thing you can't call it is adultery. Why? Because death annulled that responsibility. Her identity has changed. And her relationship to that first marriage is fundamentally altered and ended. So that's the illustration. Okay, you get that? Now, here is the analogy. Here's the truth that he is linking it to. Verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So, in the illustration then, we are like the wife. Our husband is the law of God, okay? And so the law is our first husband in the analogy. Death ended that relationship to the law. You say, wait a second, what death are you talking about? I'm still alive. I don't know how you kill Old Testament law. What death is he referring to? He's talking about Jesus' death. Okay, so that's the analogy. Death ends the relationship to the first uh, the, the, the first husband, which for us, when we were born, we were born under the law. We were born responsible to obey the law, which, of course, we never could do. We all fall short. But now, because there's a death, we are no longer bound to the law for right standing before God. 
So his point is this, that when Jesus died, we've said this so many times in Romans already, that when Jesus died, he not only died, uh, uh, well, he died for our sins, and when he died, we, in union with him, died to our sins. That unity with Jesus means that we were kind of there when he died on the cross spiritually. And that death ended that relationship to God. It is no longer binding both for death, Romans 6, 23, and obedience to the law as the basis for right standing before God. Okay, we died to our first, who are you married, you know, who who, who are you married to? Well, my first marriage was to Mr. Law. What sort of fellow was he? Oh, I could never please him. I could never do enough. Everything I tried just didn't quite make it. Now, in this case, we didn't wait three days. Because the ending, what he's talking about here spiritually in salvation, the ending of the first relationship is the immediate beginning of the second marriage. Okay? The second marriage. We all walk down the aisle and we're married to Jesus. He now is our This isn't weird, but just in the analogy, he is now our primary relationship. Faith in Christ unites us with the death that ended the law's condemnation. And we walk the aisle and are united with Jesus in our second marriage. So the old marriage to the law was shame and it was death. The new is eternal life and new life in Jesus Christ. Okay? Now see that both of these, uh, both are the cross and the resurrection are referred to here in verse 4. Died to the law through the body of Christ. The body there is not the church. That's literally the body of Jesus on the cross. Now we belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. There's the resurrection of Jesus. In order that, purpose statement, we we may bear fruit for God. So our old marriage, our first marriage bore fruit, but it was nothing good. It was shame, it was death, but the new marriage bears fruit too, and this new marriage is fruit for God. It is glorious, it is eternal. The first marriage fell short of the glory of God, the second marriage bears fruit for the glory of God, and this is all describing what it means to be a Christian. If you're a Christian here today, this is all spiritual truth describing how God saved you and what God's desire is in and through you to bear fruit for, in the second marriage that glorifies God. All right, let me, let me illustrate his illustration. You probably noticed here in Indiana, northwest Indiana, we have a lot of people moving here from Illinois. Have you noticed that? Lots of people moving here. Now, we ask the question, why are they moving here? We could think to ourselves, it must be all the nice people that we have in Northwest Indiana. We could think it's all the nice towns that we have here in Northwest Indiana. But we all know the real reason is it's all the nice taxes that we have here in Indiana. In fact, Jennifer and I hosted a group not so long ago, uh, and we do this oftentimes in our home. We have new people to the church, and maybe some of you have been to our home in that way, and we have pizza and get to know each other. So we were sitting around the, the table, and we had everybody introduce themselves. I think we had 22 people that night at the house. And 11 of them said, we moved here from Illinois for the taxes. Half of the group said that. It was, I was surprised by that. But you get the sense of that in the way that all these people, you hear the, the, the wave that's coming here. 
to, to Indiana. They're fleeing the Illinois tax law. Okay, Once they were residents in Indiana, now they are free from the old Illinois law. Are you with me? Okay, They're free. So you were married to Illinois, but once you move here, you are now married to Indiana. Hello, Mrs. Hoosier. So nice to meet you. First marriage, horror. Second marriage, glory here in Indiana. Now, let me pause for a moment because this is where they're going to edit that out of the radio broadcast. (laughs) Hopefully that was sufficient time. Okay. Now, for the illustration to be accurate, the Illinois taxes would have to be like 1 million percent. Okay? The tax debt living there, unpayable, insurmountable, I couldn't even begin to pay it. The taxes in Indiana would have to not just be 0%. For this analogy to work, to live in Indiana, somebody else pays your taxes for all of your life. And you live in Indiana forever for free. So Illinois would be death in taxes. Indiana would have to be heaven. But that can't be. Is this heaven? No, that's Iowa. I so liked it when I wrote that. It was so good, wasn't it? (laughs) But if it was, let's just say if it was, if living in Indiana was literally heaven with no taxes, what would we say to our neighbor who moved here from Illinois and who we see sending tax payments still to Illinois? You would say, why are you feeling like you are responsible to Illinois, don't you realize you're living in Indiana now? You don't have to pay those taxes anymore. Your relationship with that state is over. Breathe the free air of Indiana. Live like a Hoosier. I want to thank Gordon Fee for some of that illustration. Through Christ, our spiritual residency is the home of a new and far better husband. And through this new relationship to God, apart from the law, we now can actually bear fruit in our lives that pleases God and brings glory to him. That's what Paul's getting at here. Now look at verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What was so bad about the old marriage? What was so bad about the marriage to the law? Rather than bearing fruit for God, which is what God made us for, we bore fruit for sin and death. Our lives were married to that kind of thinking and that way of living. The little paradigm in verse 5 will be greatly expanded on in verse 7. But basically, it's t- he's talking here about how sinners sin. Notice, while we lived in the flesh, okay, the flesh is not specifically like my body, flesh, but my carnality, my sinful self, my sinful nature, that is my, my sinful flesh. These sinful passions were constantly tormenting and tempting me to sin. My very nature was to sin. You add the law to a nature that 
that wants to sin, and what do you have? <laughs> Lots of sin. Lots of sin. The law makes us want to sin more. I mean, how do you feel, even you, godly Christians here at Bethel Church, how do you feel when somebody comes up to you and says, don't do that, and they walk away? How do you feel? Oh, you tell me I can't do that? Now I want to do it what? More. So much more. You see how the law combined with sin nature, the law is actually a catalyst, an accelerant when combined with the sin nature. It makes us want to do it even more. This is a legendary story in my family growing up. I've already hinted at it. I grew up in Iowa, and we had three acres, and we had a couple horses uh, that we that we uh, took care of and occasionally showed, and that's a whole other story. But anyway, uh, to, so when you have horses, you got to keep them in somehow, and this is now however many years ago. Back in the day, uh, we had an electric fence that we used to keep the horses in the, where they're supposed to be. And so if you know an electric pen, fence, it sends out a little pulse, and it's unpleasant to horses, and it's unpleasant to children. So my dad, now you got to realize, I have, a, I have a brother who right now is preaching a sermon in Nebraska. He passed, he's a senior pastor of a church in Nebraska. But as children, I, of course, was the angelic child, and Scott was the demonic child. I mean, he was, he was so mischievous. And so my dad put up a new section of fence, and uh, he and my mom took Scott, maybe the rest of us, I don't remember, but specifically Scott, my brother, up to the fence. And he's pointed at the wire on the fence, and he said, Scott, if you touch that fence, it's going to hurt. And I'm telling you right now, you don't want to touch the fence. My mom and dad walked away. They went around the corner of the house, and my dad said to my mom, watch this. (laughs) Within five seconds... They hear, ah! (laughs) And there's my brother learning a very hard lesson about touching an electric fence. Why did Scott want to touch it so badly when told it would hurt? Because the sin nature combined with moral law arouses the very thing that we are not to do. And without God's grace, friends, this is the bondage that we're living in. This is the world that we live in. This is the society that we live in. You say, why do these people live this way? Why do they do what they do? You can say many things, but underlying all of it, the Bible says it is because we are sinners. And even as image bearers, any law that says don't do this arouses the desire to do the very thing that we are not to do. Now here's the celebration. Look at verse Look at verse uh, 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, do you hear the, uh, the marriage illustration here? First marriage was captivity. First marriage was bondage. First marriage was terrible. It was shame and death. But the new marriage... Now that we have died, we are free now to serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the bondage of the written code. No, now we live in the newness of life. We have been released. In fact, you see in verse 2 that word released 
for the woman who's released from her first marriage is the same word that we find here uh, in verse 6, that we have been released from the law. Christian, you have been released from the law. The law no longer has any condemnation upon you. We have been set free. It is freedom now not to sin. It is freedom now to bear fruit for God. We are free now to do what we never could have done in the first marriage. But now by that death that Jesus died and our new relationship united with him, we now can and will bring and bear fruit to the glory of God. And I just think, and I know for myself, I don't begin to realize just how massive this is. I don't realize all that it means in my, my freedom with Christ. I got thinking about this, and just if we got it, how our, what, our, what our feeling, our joy would be. I got thinking of people, famous people in, in, in literature and in movies, released from a slavery or from a prison. Think of Ben-Hur. There's Ben-Hur. What is he doing? He's oaring. He's a galley slave in a Roman ship. If you know the story, he gets free. Or to think about Edmund Dantes swimming to freedom from the prison in the Count of Monte Cristo. Or this image came to my mind, and if you're familiar with this, Shawshank Redemption. He gets out of of Shawshank, and he just stands there, and there's just this what? I'm free, right? I'm free, and I love that look on his face. Our joy should be far greater than release from Shawshank because Shawshank is no hell. Hell's far worse than Shawshank. Eternal condemnation is far worse than Shawshank. And to realize that God hasn't merely just set us free. What he has done here is he has instantly entered into a relationship. We have with Jesus a new identity, a new marriage Where now, not only am I not under the bondage of the law, but now I am free to bear fruit for God. A whole new approach to life. This is what he calls here the new way of the Spirit. Okay, the old way was a written code. It was exterior. That had never changed my interior. But now in Christ, God has changed my interior. The Spirit of God is living within me. God is doing this makeover inside of my heart. And because of that now, on the inside, I can, I can now bear fruit on the outside. Changing us from the inside out. And that's part of the glory of true Christianity. And maybe you've come to our church, and maybe you came from some version of Christianity, or maybe even another religion, maybe a cult of some kind. Where again, what is taught all the time? You gotta do this, and you gotta do that, and if you don't do this enough, or if, if your righteousness doesn't rise up to this level enough, then you can have no assurance that when you die, you're going to live forever. And they heap up all of these rules of moral conformity. And Christianity comes along and says this, we died to the rule-based righteousness when Jesus fulfilled the law and died in our uh, place. And so Christianity is not motivated primarily by exterior, I got to do it, but is motivated by interiors, I want to do it. Because God has changed my life, and I want to bear fruit, external fruit, to his glory. John Piper calls this the difference between putting tinsel on a Christmas tree and finding fruit on a planted tree. Think about this as you decorate your Christmas tree. Some of you did it three months ago. (laughs) 
But think about this as you decorate your Christmas tree. Okay, what are you doing? This tree is dead. This tree is severed from the root. And what do we have to do? We have to garnish it with all these things to make it appear to be alive. And we put tinsel and lights and different things on these trees, but it's a dead tree bearing things like tinsel. So different a Christmas tree in a house than an apple tree at the orchard. Nobody ever puts tinsel on trees in the orchard. Why? Because they're alive. They have their own tinsel. It's called apples and cherries and whatever, fruit. It bears fruit because it is alive. There is sap and there is root and therefore there is fruit. And what religion does is it tries to make dead trees look alive. Outward stuff. Christianity comes along, replants us, uh, makes us alive, and produces fruit, which includes obedience. Right? And so I wonder which of these describe your life. Tinsel or apples? Lights or cherries? Dead tree or apple tree? Most commentators think verses 27 through 25 is a giant parenthesis, and that really the next thought that the Apostle Paul has in the flow of the logic is Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And that's really the bottom line. And that's the bottom line really today, is to ask that question. Are you in the first marriage or are you in the second marriage? Are you living in Illinois or are you living in Indiana? Is it tinsel or is it cherries? Like what is it for you? It is either one or the other. Which is it? And to offer here in this message, my aim is basically this. My aim is for you, if you're a Christian here today, that you would have in your heart that sense that we see from Timothy Robbins in Shawshank. Where yet again, it's another day for me just to be like, yes, I'm free. You are free, Christian. You are absolutely free. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Okay? And what a thing to celebrate that is in our hearts and to be refreshed again in that reminder that I am who I am in Jesus. I am married to him. I am in union with him. And I will be forever. No taxes ever. No condemnation But secondly, again, just to press home the point, you are either one or the other here today. And I wonder if we might have some very religious people here, and you're right now, you're appealing to all the good things you could think of in your life to show that that you're actually must be under the grace of God. Those good things as the basis for your relationship with God are insufficient. You're not righteous enough. It is, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And where do, how do we get in Christ Jesus? This is union with Jesus. By repenting of all of these sins, repenting of the whole life, and turning now in faith to Jesus and say, I believe that when you died on the cross, you died for my sins. I believe that in that moment I died to my sins. I don't want to live in that way anymore. I want to be in Christ and to step into that realm of salvation under the grace of God 
and to receive a, a salvation that you didn't earn, that Jesus earned for you on the cross. And to begin a new life now. Like a new bride has a new life. To begin a new life. Bearing fruit in your life. That's good fruit. And that glorifies God. This is God's grace. And I would urge you to simply trust and believe in Jesus. As your Savior. As your Lord. Turn to him. Become a follower of Christ. And to receive the grace of God and this free gift offered to him. By, by faith in him. How good Jesus is. I mean, just, this is like, you know, you get into how God saved us and you just keep taking the layers off and layers off and layers off and you realize just the depth of all the engineering of what God did to set us free. Okay, to set us free. It's a marvel. It's a marvel. Nobody knows who, um, who wrote this little poem, but I've been saving it and I've been wanting to use it. Put it on the screen here for me. This summarizes it right here. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. And so I just want to say, Bethel, fly. Hey, you are free in Christ. Fly and rejoice that all of this has been done by our Lord and Savior, Jesus. To him be forever praised. Amen.